older than me. Um, but um, uh, some, of, some of you, I'm sure, were wondering if we had uh, had a pastor that uh, started speaking in tongues. But not to worry, I can interpret from Jim to uh, regular English. All right. Um, a uh, couple things I just wanted to highlight uh, for you. If you are new to our church, we're, Karen and I are going to host you at our home beginning on April the 5th uh, for a class that will run about four weeks called Explorers, okay? And so if you want to sign up for this kind of an experience, look for this little sign out in our hallway out here on our literature table. And you'll have an opportunity to join the Explorers class for people who are exploring being a permanent part of this, uh, this body of believers, uh, Chillicothe Bible Church. Um, we will feed you every week, and, um, and we will talk about uh, the things that we believe and how you can be involved in ministry, help you discover your spiritual gifts and what those are, and, how, and help you fit into the life of Chillicothe Bible Church. So it's an exciting thing, and uh, we've never done it before here, uh, but Karen and I have done this kind of thing uh, a lot in the past and really enjoy it. So if you're new to the church, or if you've been here a while, but you still have not signed your name on the dotted line as an official member of this august institution... Uh, we would like you to join with us and explore how you can do that and how you can fit into the body of Christ here, how you can serve in ministry and find your spiritual gift and use it to the glory of God. And it's going to be a great time. So that is exciting. Uh, and I'd like you to join us on that. Um, I think there was something else I was going to share. And if I remember what it is, I will tell you later. But uh, here this morning... Uh, we're going to look. We're going to take a break for uh, a week uh, from the book of Acts and look at the book of Romans uh, here this morning. Um, I got some advice uh, when I was in seminary from a pastor that I respect very much, and he said, "If you don't know what to preach, tell a joke and run to Romans." And since that was the joke, here we are in Romans. <laughs> All right. Um, no, seriously. Since this is our missions. Uh, festival weekend, um, what I want to do is to talk about our personal responsibility as individuals, as individual followers of Jesus Christ, as well as as a church, our personal responsibility for completing God's mission of bringing the gospel to every people and language and tongue and nation. And we have a personal responsibility to do that. As Bill Allison reminded us so wonderfully last night, how many full-time ministers of the gospel of Christ do we have here this morning? Raise your hand. All right. I should see everybody's hand up. All right. Um, everybody is a full-time minister of the gospel. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a full-time minister. You just happen to be, at the moment, disguised as a homemaker or a mechanic or a Caterpillar employee or a computer engineer, or a transmission specialist, or whatever it is that your job is, that is your disguise, that is your cover for your subversive job of turning the world upside down with the gospel of Jesus, okay? Uh, you are undercover, not because you never share the gospel of Jesus, but because you look like just a regular, ordinary person, 
But the fact that you follow Jesus means you are not a regular, ordinary person. You are a subversive and a revolutionary who is sent here by God to turn the world upside down for his kingdom. Okay? And we're going to look at that in the book of Romans, chapter 1, here this morning. Uh, and give you, this is your secret subversive mission assignment, okay? Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is contained in these two verses, right? Uh, thankfully, the Bible will not self-destruct after you read it, all right? Um, Paul says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, before we jump in, let's just pray, okay? God, our Heavenly Father, I pray that this would be the day when the mission that we are called to be on would lay hold of us all in a fresh way and that the things which break your heart would break our hearts as well. When we would have a broken heart which loves the billions of lost people in our world, the 250 million plus lost people in our own country, the thousands of lost people in our own state, in our own community, and the dozens of lost people that we encounter every day in our places of business and in our neighborhoods and even sometimes in our own families. Father, I pray that we would have broken hearts, that out of our love for people who are lost and apart from you, going to spend eternity separated from you, that we would have a passion for carrying out the ministry that you have given us of being unashamed of the gospel and carrying it to those who need to hear it, that they might experience and find the life that is truly life that we also have found. Father, I pray for our service here this morning. I pray that you would help us to lay hold of this by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, these verses seem, at first glance, if you're just kind of buzzing along through your Bible, uh, to be fairly simple. But there's actually, in just these two verses, a lot of very deep and semi-complicated theology that is there. And so I want to just take the, uh, the passage here, these two verses, a little chunk at a time and work through them completely so that you can see all of the richness that is here. Uh, first of all, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And he is not saying, let me just tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying that on an internal, psychological, personal level that he is proud of what he believes in. In other words, uh, you know, some kind of an idea of well, I think Christianity is the best, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, rah, uh, go Jesus, okay? Um, like, um, like somehow being a Christian is like being a, a Colts fan or a Duke fan or something else, you know? And thankfully, they squeaked it out this morning, uh, you know, so that uh, Rich and Tiffany are not in permanent mourning, right? Um, 
But it's not like that. It's not like being a, a fan of a sports team. It's not even like being a patriot uh, who has a love for a particular nation. He's, he is making a bold declaration. Because Paul remembers what Jesus said in, in the book of Mark chapter 8. He said, where Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. What, can a, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. When Paul says he is not ashamed, he's not talking about an inner psychological state. He is driving a stake and making a commitment. He is going on record and saying, Jesus is not going to be ashamed of me because I am not willing to be quiet about who, who I am and whose I belong, who I belong to. Who I am and whose I am. I belong to Jesus. He has given me the task of spreading the gospel, and I am not going to keep quiet about it. I am not going to sneak around and just sort of pretend that I am a Christian. I'm going to be loud and proud and vocal because Jesus has told me, don't be ashamed of me. And in fact, Paul uh, bears the scars of his commitment. If you read in 2 Corinthians, you find this, that he was beaten five times by the Jewish authorities with the 39 lashes, where they take the whip and whack you with it 39 times. Couldn't beat you 40 times because that would be degrading, but 39 lashes is apparently just short of being completely degrading. And then he also has three times that he was beaten with rods by the Roman authorities. He bears those scars. He has scars from being stoned and left for dead on one of his missionary journeys. He has scars that might be there from being shipwrecked, starved, robbed, and imprisoned multiple times. Paul endures all of it for the sake of Jesus. All of it. And so he can truly say, I am not ashamed of the gospel because nothing slowed him down. They said, if you continue to preach in the name of Jesus, we will kill you. And he said, kill me. But I am not going to stop preaching the gospel. Because he remembers what Jesus also said. Do not fear them who can kill the body and after that can do no more. Fear him who can cast body and soul into hell. Don't be ashamed of me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But who wants, whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. 
anyone is ashamed of me in this corrupt and adulterous generation, I will be ashamed of him when I come in my Father's glory with the holy angels. And so Paul is going on record that no cost is too great for him and no cross should be too great for us. Paul believed that and lived that all the way to the end of his life through his final imprisonment and beheading. And he would rather be beheaded than deny Jesus. And so he's consistent. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, when I consider my own history versus Paul's, I don't stack up real well. I don't know about you. But I have had multiple occasions over the course of my life where I didn't, I wasn't totally unashamed. You know, maybe nobody asked me directly, but I, I kept things fairly quiet because I didn't want to deal with the mockery that I knew would be there. If I said, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, didn't want to put up with that. Uh, I didn't want to spend, or maybe it wasn't that they were going to make fun of me, I just didn't have time and didn't want to talk to them about it. And so I didn't even bring it up. I've allowed my fears of what other people would think of me to influence how I live and what I would tell them. And I would bet that we've all done that. We have trimmed our sails to fit the wind. Right? And so these words from Paul are a challenge to all of us to live our lives unashamed of the gospel and unafraid of the consequences. That if we go on record that we're followers of Jesus, and by the way, you're a sinner who's separated from God apart from the fact that you follow him too. Jesus' own words tell us that he's going to be ashamed of us. And I don't want that for my life, and I would assume you don't want that for yours either. So Paul challenges us and says, look here. You've got to live your life unafraid of what people will think if they find out that you follow Christ, a crucified man who was raised from the dead. And Paul's going to give us some reasons why we can live our life that way. So let's look at those, all right? Because I want to imitate Paul's life. He's willing to go to the chopping block for Jesus. I'd like to have that kind of faith. And so Paul's going to give us some reasons why he feels the way that he does and why he can live his life the way that he does. And the first one is this. He says, because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And by that phrase, what he means is that the gospel is God's divinely empowered means by which a person can have salvation. The proclamation of the gospel is so powerful that when you share it with people, that it is actually capable of producing in them something that only God can grant, which is eternal life. And Paul says that it's God, notice, who brings salvation to people through the gospel. No human being ever could or ever did anything 
that could have brought them one iota closer to a relationship with God. It's not possible for a person under their own steam to come into a right relationship with God. Uh, there's, nothing, there's no list that you can check off all the boxes on and say, well, I have done all the stuff I was supposed to do, and so therefore I'm right with God. No, you're not. You're just a person good at checking off boxes. Uh, there's no list of stuff that you can stop doing. A lot of people think that, that Christianity even is like that, that somehow there's a list of stuff that if you just don't do all of that stuff, well, then you'll be right with God. No. Paul says that it's not dependent on human effort that a person comes into right relationship with God. What does it depend on? The power of God in the gospel. In other words, salvation comes completely, utterly, totally, wholly, only, solely by God's power. At work in the person's heart and life through the gospel. And when the gospel is proclaimed, God's power starts working in that person who heard it. And because of that magnificent fact, Paul says, I'm going to proclaim the gospel no matter the cost. Because the gospel actually works in people's hearts and lives to change them. Because God empowers it to work to bring about personal salvation in people who, apart from the gospel, could have absolutely no hope of right relationship with God. It's the power of God for salvation. And then he goes on, he says, of everyone who believes. Now, this is incredible. This is, this is you've you got to just step back a second and just get a hold of this for a minute because this is amazing. There are a lot of religions out there where a person's access or status in the, in the overarching religious hierarchy that they've got going is dependent on who they are. Okay? Uh, all of you ladies, I'm glad you're here this morning rather than at the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Let me tell you why. Because if you are a Mormon... What you believe is that a, a woman has status only insofar as she is married to forever and ever, by the way. Um, death does not end your relationship. It's to the very in, on into eternity. Okay? Um, that if you have status as a Mormon woman only insofar as you are married to a good Mormon man. So your destiny is eternally tied to his. So if he is a bum... He is a bum that you are married to for all eternity. Okay, now that's really nice, okay. Um, but if he is a good Mormon who, you know, attains the highest levels of heaven in their concept, then you attain the highest levels of heaven with him. And your job, by the way, is to spend eternity breeding with him uh, to produce uh, babies to populate your little spirit world that you run together. Kind of weird. All right, but your status as a woman is totally dependent on this guy that you marry here in, here in the here and now. It has nothing to do with your obedience and everything to do with his. So be careful who you marry if you're a Mormon, right? Be really super careful who you marry because there's no getting out of this deal, not even death. 
Um, let me give you another one. In Islam, same deal. If you're a woman, your purpose essentially is to satisfy the biological drives of the man to whom you are married. And heaven basically is for men. And as a woman, you maintain second-class status within that. Uh, if you're a higher-caste Hindu, you are closer to heaven and attaining nirvana than if you're a lower-caste Hindu or an untouchable. In almost every religion of the world, who you are determines your status even in the things of God, not in Christianity, not in biblical belief in Jesus. Who you are has no relationship. Who you are in this life, what status you have, you know, how much money you've got, how good-looking you are or not, um, how much hair you have or not. I'm finding that one increasingly important. Um, that has nothing to do with your status before God. Everyone has equal status and equal access and equal opportunity to be in the presence of God within biblical belief. Why? Because in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And so Paul says, it is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes. So sex, color, height, weight, thank God, age, social class, intelligence has nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it. What does it have to do with? Everyone who believes that each person who has a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, anyone who believes, God saves. And so Paul intimately connects the human element, belief, and the divine element, God's power and sovereignty, in calling that person to life together. And he unites them. Anyone who believes can have right relationship with God. And that's, that is huge. I mean, sometimes as Christians, we forget how truly, completely amazing that is. That the standards of this life bear no resemblance to God's standards. That you may be uh, homeless, out of work, um, IQ the you know the slightly above room temperature, okay. Um, all of that matters not at all in your ability to come to God. Everyone who believes can have a relationship with God that changes them and perfects them and brings them into the glory of God's presence where they experience all of the blessing that God can bestow upon a human being simply on the basis of your faith that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who was crucified for your sin and risen from the dead, proving that he is God. Everyone who believes that message comes into perfect relationship with God. Now, is that great news or what? I mean, there is nothing in all the world that is worth telling people about than that. 
if you want to, if you're a young person, especially, you know, sometimes when you're young, you get real idealistic and you want to join some great cause that's bigger than yourself. Or when you get to be middle-aged and you go, man, I got through about half of life and life ain't all that great. I wish I had something more significant to give my life to. You can give your life to this. And you will never find anything better than this to devote your life to. The proclamation of the gospel is where it's at, man. It doesn't get any better than this. That everyone who believes can have right relationship with God. Everyone who can come into a relationship with God, regardless of who they are. That's cool. I just think that is just beyond, beyond cool. Um, biblical faith entails two aspects, okay? If you want to be a biblical Christian, you have to do two things. Uh, there's, a, there's a knowledge component and an obedience component, okay? Uh, or we can talk about it, the Bible talks about it this way, so we can talk about it this way, in terms of repentance and faith, okay? Okay? Um, and, and you might think of it this way, that as you're walking down the road, living your life apart from God, that you are going your way away from him, okay? And when you repent, you turn away from the way that you were going, okay? So it's kind of turn, and the word actually means to turn around, to turn away from the way that you were going, and then you are turning in the, in the same time, turning toward something. Turning toward Jesus and away from your old life. And so you both repent from your old life and you turn toward Jesus and express faith. To trust in him. Okay? And biblical faith involves both aspects. It involves more than, in other words, just simply acknowledging the, whole, the historical fact that there is a person named Jesus who was born of a virgin, who grew up in Nazareth, who taught some neat stuff, who did some cool miracles, and who died on the cross and was raised from the dead. Lots of people believe that. Demons believe that. It's all historical fact. It happened. But that is not what, what brings a person into right relationship with God. What brings a person right, into right relationship with God is not the acknowledgement of this, those historical facts, but a decision to trust in the person that those facts speak about and to trust him solely and completely with your eternal destiny and to say to Jesus, I am relying on you and you alone as my only hope of heaven, and I am turning my life, my old life, over to you that I might have new life in following you. So that you repent and you express biblical faith. And there are two aspects, two different ways of talking about the same thing. Two heads, I mean two sides of the same coin, the heads and the tails, okay, of repentance and trust. Turning away from your old life and toward Jesus. Now, Paul goes on. He says, it's first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Now, this is important because Paul is concerned that Gentiles in Rome, the, the ones to whom he is writing, not discount the fact that salvation in our world comes to us through the Jews and from the, Jews, the Jewish people. 
and they retain a special place in God's plan. In fact, he's going to spend three chapters explaining, chapters 9 through 11, how it is that salvation came to us through the Jewish nation. And yet, not that many Jews have come to faith in Christ since the first century. How is that possible, Paul? How does that work? Um, what he is saying is, is this. It's first for the Jew, that meaning that Jesus is the fulfillment of promises that God made to the Jewish nation with whom he had made a number of covenants. Uh, Jesus is the king who was promised to David, the prophet like me who God promised to the nation through Moses. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah. And so when he came, he came to the lost sheep of Israel first, as he himself said. But it's a pattern, and this is also a pattern that Paul maintained throughout his missionary journeys. He would go to the Jews in a community first. He would go to the synagogue and teach there about how Jesus, when he came, was the fulfillment of all that God had promised them. This is the Mashiach, the anointed one, the Messiah, who was to come. The one whom all of the law and the prophets point to. This is it. And to the extent that he could lead people to faith in Christ in the synagogue, he would do so. And to the extent his message was rejected, he would go to the Gentiles. Because we experience the overflow of God's promises to that nation. And there will be a day, Paul says very clearly in Romans, when we who have been grafted in, you know, we're wild olive shoots, he calls us, who have been grafted into the natural olive tree of Israel. But there will be a day when the natural branches are grafted back in. That God has temporarily set that nation aside. But one day they will reclaim their responsibility before God to preach the gospel as we do. And so the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, for you and I. And we have an equivalent status as we stand before God with God's chosen people. Now, that is really amazing. That the promises of the Old Testament have been fulfilled in you and I, people who have no ethnic claim to being part of the people of God. So that it's truly to everyone who believes. Now, verse 17. uh, For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. Um, Now, Paul is going to, this is his other big reason to be bold in proclaiming the gospel. And that is because, his, his second big reason is because in the gospel, the righteousness from God is, has been revealed. Now, you might not know it, but that little phrase, the righteousness of God being revealed, is what touched off the Protestant Reformation in 1517. The reason that this church exists the way it does is because of this little phrase, the righteousness of God, which a little monk from Germany by the name of Martin Luther uh, began to fully understand in all the ways that Paul meant it. And then his ideas became the 95 Theses, which got tacked to the Wittenberg door on October 31st, 1517, got printed, translated into German, and printed all over the country. 
and restore the biblical gospel to you and I. Um, what, is it, what does it mean? Okay, um, He is talking, first of all, about God's wrath against sin, whereby God reveals his holiness against sin. And the righteousness of God, when it when it's occurs in the scriptures, includes that aspect of it. That God is holy and that we are sinful and the gospel, in a sense, reveals God's holiness and righteousness in the way that he deals with sin. How does he deal with it in the gospel? He pours out his wrath on Jesus. And Jesus takes the punishment that we deserve. And so his righteousness is revealed in that sense. Let me give you a couple of other senses, okay? Um, That it's a new status the righteousness of God that we as believers have as they stand before God. And this is what Luther called alien righteousness. In other words, it's not native to us. We, don't, we didn't come up with this. This isn't something that we just innately have. This is alien to us. And we receive from God a form of righteousness which we have done nothing to deserve, but which God just grants to us on the basis of his grace. That we who believe the gospel are granted, as we stand before God, complete righteousness. Now imagine that. You are guilty as you can possibly be as you stand before God, but because you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ, he grants you the righteousness of Christ on your behalf because Jesus paid for your sin. And so you get to swap your funkiness for Jesus' holiness, and as you stand before God, you stand before him holy and righteous. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, he means that. He also means this, that we actually possess this kind of righteousness because God's Holy Spirit transforms us. In other words, that which God saves, he changes so that we who believe the gospel are transformed by it. It works itself out in our lives so that we actually have the righteousness of God in a practical sense that we are granted in a theological sense. Okay? That that our justification and our sanctification eventually come together so that who we are day to day starts to look like who we, who we are as we, in terms of our status or our position on the day that we are saved. And that the righteousness of God becomes revealed in our lives as Jesus, uh, by his Holy Spirit, transforms us and works his salvation out in us so that we have the righteousness of God on the day that we believe, a new status as we stand before God, innocent of all of our sin. And because of that action by God, he works in our lives so that progressively over time, we start to possess in day-by-day experience the new status that we have so that who we are begins to be reflected in how we behave. Okay? that our identity in Christ begins to work itself out so that we actually, people can actually look at us and see the righteousness of God in us because we have embraced the gospel. 
That is really cool. Um, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Um, this, this part of the verse actually reads, if you, if you look at it in, in Greek, it says, from faith to faith. And I think what he means by that is this, that righteousness doesn't come by human action. In other words, it isn't by jerking really hard on our own bootstraps that we're able to pull ourselves up to God's righteousness. It is from faith to faith. It is from, um, it is by faith from first to last. That as we trust God and submit ourselves to him, he works in us to produce the righteousness in us which he granted to us initially when he saved us and he works it out um there is no part of this righteousness that flows from me or from you as a person it flows solely from god into us and through us and then out into how we behave and act the last part here he says for the righteous will live by faith now, Paul, what Paul does there is really interesting. He appropriates a verse from Habakkuk, and Habakkuk is all about dealing with the problem of evil. I don't know if you know that, but Habakkuk is asking God, how come you don't deal with any of the wicked people that are around me? And God says, don't worry about it, uh, prophet Habakkuk. I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to uh, judge the people of Israel with the Babylonians. And then Habakkuk has a bigger problem because... The Babylonians are more wicked than the nation of Israel that they're going to be punishing by the hand of God. And Habakkuk has a real problem with this and works itself out um, and, and argues back and forth with God. It's an interesting book. I urge you to read it. Um, but in Habakkuk, uh, God says through the prophet, the righteous will live by faith. And what he means by that in context is this, that I'm going to judge the nation but I'm going to save a remnant out of, out of the nation, those who are faithful to me. And those who walk by faith in me will live. But Paul applies that over to our situation in, uh, in a spiritual sense, what Habakkuk was given in a very physical sense. And what he means is this, is that through faith in the gospel... We become righteous, and we are granted eternal life. And so the righteous live eternally because of their faith. He also means this, that as believers in Christ, in our day-to-day -day existence, we live by faith. You know, just like Hebrews talks about, by faith Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and, cho and chose to, endure the to reject the pleasures of sin for a season and endure the suffering along with the people of God by faith. By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain. By faith, Daniel shut the mouth of the lions. By faith, all these people, right? have this great chapter, Hebrews 11, that talks about how by faith people live their lives and calls us in that same chapter to live in the same way, by faith, that, at, that you 
not only trust God for salvation, but you live daily by faith. That the same faith which grants you eternal life is the same faith that you live out day to day. And if you're going to be righteous, you're going to have to live in light of the faith that you expressed. Right? That's Paul's point. All right. Now, this is a, I think this is just a deep passage. This is a deep well of a lot of great stuff. And hopefully I have explained uh, enough of the content here for you, you all to get a hold of it a little bit. Um, I'm hoping that the Spirit of God will use this passage to transform your life and to, and to encourage you and spur you on toward the kind of boldness in proclaiming the gospel to people that you know and run into contact with. Just as Paul says, I am not ashamed. Let me just talk just for a second here as we close about the kind of transformation that I'm hoping that we can all see as this passage works itself out in our lives. Okay? First one is this. Is first question I'd like to ask is this. Have you believed? Paul says the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And so the big question is, have you done that? Have you believed what the gospel says? Uh, not just acknowledge the facts about Jesus' death and resurrection. Those are historical facts, and they're true. But believing in those historical facts gets you no closer to God. It's trusting in Jesus and his death on the cross for your sin personally and in his resurrection to new life in imitation of which if you are a follower of his, you will also experience resurrection from the dead. That have you granted him who died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead full authority for running and leading your life? Have you believed? Have you turned away from your old life and turned toward Jesus and followed after him? Because if you haven't, I'll assure you there is nothing you can do that will merit or earn or buy or deserve or credit you salvation. You can't be good enough to come into a relationship with God. You can only trust in Jesus Christ, who is the only one who has ever lived, who has ever been good enough to stand before God. And his death in your place that you might have eternal life. And if you haven't, don't let the day go by without making that decision of turning away from your old life and towards Christ and completely trusting in him as your only hope of standing righteous before God on the day of judgment. If you have done that, let me ask you this question, and then we'll close. Watch a little video and be dismissed, okay? Uh, are you ashamed of the gospel and the way you live your life? Since this is Mission Fest weekend, let me just share with you one of my favorite stories of one of my favorite missionaries, a guy named Adoniram Judson. Now, this guy was, as in Christian terms, the biggest stud that I am aware of, okay? He, he was an American Baptist missionary in Burma during the first half of the 18th century 
I mean, of uh, uh, 19th century, first half of the 1800s. He buried on the mission field two wives, uh, several of his children during his missionary service. He spent 12 months hanging upside down in prison with just his shoulders and his head touching the floor. And spent the time hanging upside down translating the New Testament into Burmese. Because he figured if I'm going to be hanging out here, I might as well be productive. This guy, I mean, this guy had, you know, he was, uh, as one uh, fellow I heard describe him, he was three-quarters backbone and the rest gristle, all right? Um, He was a tough, tough guy, fully committed to Jesus. When he got out, he had permanent scars around his ankles from where the shackles had hung him upside down for 12 months. And he wanted to go into a part of Burma that was not controlled by the British Empire. And the Burmese Burmese emperor forbid him to go. He says, I do not fear to send you into into my country because of your message, because I think your message is foolish and none of my people are foolish enough to believe it. But they might believe on account of your scars. What about you? Is there any cost that you are unwilling to bear to prevent you from proclaiming the gospel? Is there any circumstance in which you are ashamed of the gospel? If there is, repent. Because while they might not believe based on our message, and certainly not based on our presentation. They might believe based on our scars. Let's pray. 